Rosemary's Hit List, the official companion podcast, is a killer audio creations production. It is produced on request of Showmax. The content, opinions, and views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Showmax, Killer Audio Creations, or any of its affiliates or sponsors. This podcast may contain disturbing subject matter, and this should be taken into consideration when listening. Welcome back to Rosemary's Hit List, the official companion podcast. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. And I'm Mfondondala. If you haven't listened to episode one, two, or three of the podcast, or watched the Showmax original Rosemary's Hit List, I strongly recommend that you do that first and come back here. In episode one and two, we discussed two aspects of this case that may have played a role in how Rosemary was able to commit so many crimes and continue on unchecked for so long, the insurance industry and her job as a police officer. In episode three, we did a sometimes uncomfortable dive into Rosemary's mind. And in this fourth and final episode, we discuss one of the things that Mfundo and I think sets this case apart from many others, culture and tradition. Culture in this case is a backdrop. It's the scene against which these horrific crimes were committed, but it's also inextricably woven into the fabric of what Rosemary did and why. South Africa has the third highest number of convicted serial killers in the world. When people hear that stat, they often gasp. That's usually because they're not considering what the convicted part means. It doesn't mean that we necessarily have more serial killers than anybody else, because there's absolutely no way to know that for sure. It means we're pretty darn good at catching them. But even with all that data on these serial killers, there's one thing that consistently seems to be swept aside, and for me, that's culture. Serial killers in every single country are different, vastly different, while still similar in some ways. Their differences are fueled by socioeconomic circumstances, legal frameworks, and culture. We know that what makes a serial killer who they become often has at least something to do with how they grew up. But I think we often look at that too myopically. We look at the family, and not the greater community, in which that family exists. And let's be very clear here, this is not about assigning blame. The blame for the crimes will always 100% rest with the perpetrator. But if we want to truly understand how a so-called bad apple became bad, we need to understand the environment in which it was stored. And then, on the very other end of the scale, how were the victims impacted by culture? What are all of these whispers we heard about traditional healers and muti? When I did the Devil's Dorp Companion podcast, I discussed the religious elements of that case in depth, because it formed a very important part of the environment in which that case occurred. Some parts of that discussion were uncomfortable for some, 
because there are things some of us have been culturally, yes, there's that word again, conditioned to have a negative reaction to. But all that is, is fear of the unknown. So I invite you, if this applies to you, to replace your weariness with curiosity for the rest of this episode. And maybe, just maybe, at the end, you'll have a better understanding. Not just of this case, but of all your fellow South Africans. We are really honoured to be joined in this episode by Coco Dineo Ndlanzi. Coco Dineo appeared in the Showmax original Rosemary's Hitlist, and the minute I heard her speaking, I knew I needed to talk to her more about this. Coco Dineo Ndlanzi is a preeminent and pioneering Sangoma who has successfully merged the sacredness of African spirituality with modern thinking. She is a celebrated spiritual teacher, life coach, African storyteller, actress, writer, dancer, and trained facilitator. Teaching is at the heart of what Coco Dineo does. She's also one of those rare people who manages to bridge the gap between those who know and those who don't. And we need more people like that. I had a huge number of light bulb moments when listening to Coco Dineo's insights, and I have no doubt that you will too. Nicole, firstly, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And I was conflicted when after I watched it and after you you watched the feedback. Mm-hmm. And hearing you say how insightful the insights was, it's what I get on the streets, especially with people who are not familiar with African spirituality. So I'm known as Coco Dinawanzanzi. So basically, Coco is a title given to people who are trained, um, you know, it, within the African spiritual uh, practices. And I'm trained as Isangoma. That's one of the things I'm trained in. I'm trained as a prophet, but I've got, I'm trained in ma- many other things. So I, I deal a lot with also the human um, psyche, even though I'm not a clinical or trained psychologist but I'm trained in metaphysics. So always kind of understanding things beyond what, you know, the physical eyes can can see and looking at the root cause of things. And I think coming and being featured on the Rosemary hit list was basically to say, you know, Goko, just give us insight about what are the root causes and the things that could have led to a motivation versus just the obvious, because there was also a lot of things that, were said or rebuilt in relation to African spiritual practices that had my voice not been there, it would have actually continuously perpetuated the stereotypes towards African practitioners. You know, how we actually just can get out, allow people get away with murder and how we actually are the ones who are giving them a muti or stuff, you know, to evade, um, you know, being persecuted and target their victims to a point where, Rosemary could get away with so much and nobody could notice the red flags. So coming in basically was just a voice to clarify, but a voice that can also say no. Once somebody like Rosemary does what they do and they consult whomever that they consult, even if it's, you know, a a police officer, uh, even if it's a doctor, but they get away with taking a life 
we can no longer recognize people as credible, you know, healing practitioners. Mm -hmm. And hearing you say how insightful it was. And yeah, I, people on the streets be like, I think I know you. I use that Gogo on Rosemary. And I didn't realize how popular it has become across different ages. I was doing a seminar for 30 years, which I do every year with science students. And most of the students were just excited to see me because they've watched the documentary and they, you know, everybody actually reiterates the same sentiments, how insightful and how eye opening it has been because we don't come from a background where we embed it in knowledge of understanding what African spiritual practice is about. So, yeah. One of the things that Tabang Tlaka chatted to us about in the last episode was how it's vital to be able to treat the entire person, including taking into account any spiritual and traditional beliefs they may have. We have such a beautifully diverse country, but the large majority of South Africans exist in a space where they've been raised with really steadfast beliefs. And yet, for the most part, Western and modernized society does not accept those beliefs. So if they wish to honor them, that's made extremely difficult. Mfundo has some interesting insights on this too, from her own experiences. When we're speaking about culture and cultural practices, I think most of us would agree that a lot of it was lost to colonization and time, but another part of it has and is being lost to modernization. Understanding this fact better enables us to understand why it's important to integrate different belief systems into modern society, educate one another, and gain a deeper appreciation and respect for each other's cultures. I was fortunate enough to be raised in a space where I have an uncle who is a reverend and his wife, a Sangoma. This has allowed me to explore both sides of the Black South African experience. I wasn't limited in what I was taught between Ndebele customs and modern Christian rituals. In my personal life, I was encouraged to seek and practice both sides of the South African dichotomy. I personally find African spirituality and differing cultural practices are to a certain extent well respected in our country. I can't deny that in certain spaces, the stigma of African spirituality, the use of muti, consulting with sangomas, all those things, they are considered taboo. And the people that engage in them, they do face a certain level of discrimination. But for the most part, I don't notice a significant divide between the two worlds. I don't think there is a greater example of the integration of these practices and modern society than the fact that there are multiple reality TV shows that specifically focus on Izangwama and the work that they do, unveiling the mystery of it all, educating outsiders, and allowing public conversation about these things is a great tool against discrimination, misinformation, and even people's biases. Over and above the spirituality aspects, Sangomas play a vital role in South African society, especially in a healthcare setting as traditional health practitioners, as well as in a criminal justice setting as consultants. 
In this case, we saw how sangomas can be used in the commission of a crime. And many a time, especially in cases involving muti murder, the professional expertise of a sangoma tends to be beneficial to the investigation. We have thus created a space in the South African cultural landscape where these customs and practices can be openly discussed. We have created a space for these teachings in our institutions of higher learning. And I think that is a great representation of the goal of the ordinary South African, the goal of living in a harmonious environment with those that are like you and those that are unlike you and bringing two separate worlds together as one. And for Gogo Duneo, that treating of a person holistically is second nature. And in order to achieve that bringing together of the two worlds that Mfundo spoke about, we need to check our own biases at the door. Well, you know, just to say that when you look at African spiritual healing, Mm. we understand that the human is a system, right? That it's parts of the system interact and interrelate. So we don't just look at treating the spiritual body, but we look at how the spiritual body is connected to the mental, the emotional and the physical. Mm. So spiritual healing is about that kind of holistic healing. And I think what, uh, you know, when I look at the voices like, yeah, but what is Coco doing there? She wasn't part of the investigation. Is because people only understand Sangomas to throw bones and do cleansings and then cast spells and give people love potions. That's the frame uh, the frame in which people's mindsets um, understand the work that we do. So when you've got somebody who starts to give perspective in a way in which you, you know, challenges your own thinking, it becomes two things. It becomes, it firstly becomes uncomfortable. And then with that discomfort, it's either you move towards a point of, being curious and like, this is interesting. I want to know about this. Or you go to a point of like, no ways, it can be because that's not what you, you, you don't belong in that box. And I think that's why a lot of our systems fail is because the systems, the parts of the systems don't speak to each other. You know, the justice system doesn't speak to uh, the Department of Health. If you look at the incident where Rosemary actually finished one of the, uh, you know, victims at the hospital, had people be speaking to each other, you know, some of these matters could have actually been nipped before they even occurred. But we don't think that way. We are not programmed to think that way. We are programmed to see uh, each other as separate from each other, but we are actually interconnected. So even when it comes to us, to our own bodies, when you've got a headache, you think it's just, I need you know, I need paracetamol and taking paracetamol is going to do the headache away, not realizing that you're actually numbing and trying to treat the symptom. But the root cause of the headache might be much far, far deeper. It might have nothing to do with, you know, a biology out of sync with each other. But it could be that you are actually being overburdened or you're feeling stressed and you're not even aware you are stressed. You think, oh, no, it's just that, you know. So mm-hmm. that's I think that's how society is wired when we moved towards um, you know, uh, immensing ourselves in, you know, Western paradigm. We moved some, for, away from some indigenous, uh, you know, thinking processes and thought processes that sees the interconnection of things. Because humans are systems. We're not machines. 
mm-hmm. right? Social issues are, are, are systematic issues. Mental health is a social issue, right? So if we are not seeing it from a multiple perspective and who are the role players and who, how do we speak it to each other, we are not going to resolve the problem. Albert Einstein says that you cannot solve a problem from the very same thinking that you've created it. And I think we are trying to solve so many things uh, in the country, but with the very same frame, framework, the very same mindset that created. So by the time we think we're getting to a resolution, we're setting over again. And you could see it with that investigation as well. I think this idea that the way we silo ourselves off within society and then on a micro scale, the parts inside of ourselves could have played a role in Rosemary's crimes and that bears further attention. If there's anything we've learned in this podcast so far, it's that although Rosemary holds full and final responsibility for what she did, there were also many things that played in her favour and the siloing off of departments, families, and individuals is most certainly one of them. The work that Gokodineo does is extremely important. But just like those who sought to bring Rosemary to justice came up against significant barriers, I can only imagine that she does too. We asked her what sorts of opposition she's come up against in her work. So I think one uh, one of the barriers is just religion. So how dogmatic religion becomes and therefore will invalidate anything else that does not subscribe to its philosophies. Yes, so the minute I speak about the work I have to do, then I have to make a choice between the work that I do and my practice and God. But you don't get to ask a psychologist to do it, you know. So that's one, uh, because it's like, do you believe in God or not? You know, and if you believe, so we I face a lot of interrogation and somewhat I need to prove the work that I do, you know, uh, according to somebody else's standards. It needs to fit in my framework. Otherwise, if it doesn't fit in my framework, it doesn't exist, right? And I always say to people, just because you don't believe it's there doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because you don't believe that Rosemary used a lot of dark stuff to get away with things for so long. It doesn't mean she didn't use it. It's not only that, you know, the justice system has been incompetent. We know that it's, you know, it's got its struggles, but people do things in the, you know, you know, in the paranormal and people think, no, it's, it's not, it's not there. So that's one. The other, the second thing is people needing to keep you in the box as they know you to be. So with me, the challenge is like it can be. You can be a Sangoma and be so eloquent, articulate, and be so insightful and be, you know, and know as much as you know. And this is mostly from actually the Black community. The discomfort of me being able to share and express things in the way that I do is from my is from my own community. Like, what is she doing there? What does she know? She's just a Sangoma, you know. Because the expectation is for me to make mediocre, right, of the practice, is for me to speak about the gruesome stuff. There's things I refuse to express in the documentary because they're sacred. Mm -hmm. And I said, I can't share those things because we could be watching, we can have another Rosemary watching the Rosemary. Who's going to be listening to this interview and be like, wow, thank you, Coco. Now I know how to get away with second murder, you know, because there are, we know with serial 
killers. There are other serial killers who look up to them and start to worship them and mimic their behavior, yeah. right? Because that's that's how the criminal mind is wired. So I was like, no, I'm not going to reveal that. But secondly, I can't reveal something that is sacred. And when you are watching as an, an, as an outsider, you are not immense in that particular practice. It makes it very hard because spiritual healing requires one to go through the experience to fully understand what we are actually doing it's mm. not only in me saying we're going to do one two three but you the one two three steps make sense when you are in them so that's the other thing and i also didn't want to just expose and jeopardize the community of practice for the sake of being insightful and educational so from my own community we are used to healers coming in platforms like that and speaking around how they actually then would mix this and take this and take this human blood and like the gruesomeness of it becomes mm. quite exciting. And then it it then does goes, you see, it puts the stamp of approval. This is what we said about these people. Look how evil they are because look at who this one is saying. So in the work that I do, I have to be conscious that Yes, part of my calling is to teach, but in my teaching, I should not be compromising everybody else for the sake of teaching. You can still teach without overexposing information. So these are some of the challenges, you know, even people mm -hmm. coming, then expecting us to do what they believe that we do. When I was asked about Izinkabi, for example, I said, I, I know there's a lot of evil that goes down there. I don't do it and I don't have interest because I'm not called to condone such behavior. Because for me, how I got trained and one of the code of ethics I was given is I am a life giver. I do not take life. I don't help people taking life. The minute I do that, I move away from my work as a, you know, the one who facilitates mm. life giving. So I needed, I, I, therefore it means that I don't then become interested in things that says you've actually consciously and intentionally for, you know, for your own desire have taken a life because it fulfills either a monetary value or it fulfills a particular status or it fulfills whatever it fulfills in you, you know, and here I am and I'm saying I'm Isangoma, I'm supposed to make well what is not well. But I'm actually just making sure that your own individual desire is fulfilled at the expense of the collective. Like I said, we mm -hmm. are interconnected at the expense of the collective. Mine is to restore things to harmony and balance at the collective. Because as a healer, I'm looking at how do we keep the system healthy? Your system as a person that is made of the different parts of the system that I've alluded to earlier on, but yeah. also you are part of the community. You know, your community is part of the family. Your family is part of society. Society is part of, you know, the nation. The nation is part of the global community. So mm -hmm. as you heal as a healer, you're thinking of, what are the consequences? Because one of the natural laws that we operate from, we know that every action has a consequence. What I put in here is going to come out. So when it comes out, who is going to be affected as well? One of the other things that we found super fascinating about Gogo Dineo's insights in Rosemary's hit list was her use of the word rituals to describe the things that people do to self-soothe or to achieve a specific state of mind. I thought the use of that word was pretty interesting, 
because we would usually associate it with occult-type practices, while here, Gorgotoneo is using it to describe the things we all do, the things we've taught ourselves to do to move through experiences in our lives. For some people, for instance, smoking a cigarette as a way to ease their nerves is a ritual, or even the way they've taught themselves to react to others can be considered a ritual. Then she shifted that to Rosemary and explained how she too would have been using certain personal rituals to deal with things that were going on in her head. As unique as Rosemary is in her crimes as a serial killer and her conviction as a serial killer, she was much like other serial killers by way of having her own compulsions or rituals. It's very possible that she carried her gun in her purse with her at all times as a means to self-soothe, for example. I'm going to echo Ukokorineo. In the documentary, she mentioned that not only was money the draw, but something about the murders themselves kept her going and repeating the fraud cycle over and over and over again. As a known gambling addict, we can sort of make an educated prediction with regards to her draw to money and the need for that constant thrill. So perhaps in some ways, repeatedly getting away with murder was another thrill or something else that she could win. Most of how she operated throughout the orchestration and execution of these murders was a gamble. She couldn't be certain that her colleagues wouldn't give her up when she approached them for assistance with hiring hitmen. Even the funeral policy payouts were a complete gamble, as a number of her victims were very obviously murdered. Investigations into these murders had the potential to severely delay or even deny her payday. Despite the potential obstacles in the way of her plans, Rosemary almost ritualistically killed off members of her family and her loved ones. When I say ritualistically in the context of Rosemary's hit list, I don't necessarily mean the esoteric or the metaphysical aspects of her crime, but rather the repetitive nature of her crimes and the never-ending cycle of grief and heartache that she created. I said to you, I'm glad that we're not doing the visual because I had to do my morning ritual, one of my morning rituals, which is to, you know, is to exercise. And because I'm away, normally I'd go to gym, but I had to run, right? That's my morning ritual. So ritual is one that helps us transition from one state of being to the other. So, for example, for me, the ritual of running is so that I can be able to actually start to engage uh, you know, my brain in a way in which it releases endorphins, you know, because we know exercise is not good for just for your physical health, but for your mental health as well. So that's what ritual is. And a lot of us do rituals, but how ritual has been, it's a, it's a ritual to sit at 7 p.m. and we all have dinner. Because when we're sitting down and we're having dinner, that part of the ritual one is that we are transitioning from individually doing activities and coming and reconnecting again as a family. So that ritual reconnects us as this unit. And that ritual keeps us connected as that unit because ritual is like to transition for connection, right? So that ritual also keeps us 
connected as a family and understanding what has what is how has your day been right how has your day been and we have because you know with the modern life and our devices and technology some of the rituals have faded away you know because we come and we are eating but we are on our phones we're not talking you see when people go out to dinner and you you're looking at them and everyone is on their devices so now that has become a ritual to connect via these devices but then there is no genuine connection because yes, this is the way in which we connect, but I really don't, I don't know you, Nicole. I know of you, you know of me through this conversation. It's only through seeing and and, and genuine connecting and being in conversation when we're sitting around the table. Do I get to see you? Do I get to understand you? Because then there's body language. There's a whole lot one gets when we're in the physical space. So that's what I meant by ritual, because people just think it's occultic. Baptism is a ritual, right? Yeah. Because when people do a baptism is that you are being baptized because you are being embedded in a new identity, which is to say, I'm going to be Christian, right? So that going to, to the mosque every Friday to pray, that's a ritual. So we all do rituals. It's just that because ritual is a word that is so connected to, I think, indigenous practices, something outside mainstream religion, then it has become a bit of an uncomfortable or a word that has been distorted so so many times because you only are doing ritual, you know, because ritual is to with an outcome of evil, but not all rituals is with the outcome of evil. Something I said in the documentary, because when you look at it, Right. Uh, you can easily see it as like, oh, no, she had a gambling addiction and she just killed to pay off the debts. And I said to no, besides the monetary value, something was deeply fulfilled inside it. Somewhat for her, that ritual, because it was a ritual of killing. She went through those different types of rituals and one of it was for killing because it's something that got fulfilled. You know, there's a void, you know, because then is that I, I probably felt so disempowered and I, I, I got bullied as a child or this is what was happening. I was invisible. I was never seen. So when I can be able to take a life and I know I've done it and I've gotten away with it, I'm like, whoa, I'm alive again, right? Because people who are serial killers, when they kill, they're killing because part of the killing, one of the reasons, not the only reasons, is because it they are able to siphon somebody's life force because yeah. they themselves feel depleted. They don't have what we call the God energy force, the light, you know, the aliveness that somebody will feel from waking up and say, wow, I'm alive, you know, from running and say, oh my God, I'm so they get it through doing harm because that's the only way they probably have a program running in, in their brain somewhere that says that's the only way. I can feel alive. You see it with victims who have experienced uh, sexual abuse. They would actually need to do physical harm to feel alive because remember, in those instances of abuse of their traumas, they went into what we call the reptilian brain to survive that encounter. So they detached and disconnected. So they felt nothing. That's why, you know, they have to cut themselves or do reckless and risky behavior to feel alive because then the adrenaline is released, right? You engage your stress hormones and there's a rush. So I'm sure when she did those things, something came alive in her. 
you know, and I, I think if you were to do a proper, you know, psychological, psychiatric assessment, not with the intention of medicating, but with the intention of understanding what happened to Rosemary, what was in her childhood, what has informed her that this is the way for you to feel alive, you'll find that there were actually other gruesome things that the, the documentary has not yet discovered about the childhood that she's had to a point of where she was just, you saw it in the trial. It's like she got disassociated. Like you are here, trial for murder, and you are smiling and waving and sitting and showing your hairstyle. And like, no, I didn't do anything because that has been her trauma response to disassociate. And like, you know, I feel nothing. I see nothing. So I wonder what is she doing to see and feel now that she's actually in physical isolation? I think it's important for us to point out here that our conversations are not intended to excuse Rosemary's actions in any way. There is no way to excuse what she did. Rather, everything we've discussed over the last four episodes, I would hope would help to explain and understand. Because when we better understand, we are better placed to prevent. And as we chatted with Tabang Klaka about in the last episode, even if there was no outright, what we might term, obvious instances of abuse in Rosemary's childhood, we know that she grew up in deeply poverty-stricken circumstances. And poverty does traumatize. Yeah, it is trauma. It is, I think people just think trauma is the obvious. Remember, as children, right, our brain is not as developed as adults. So anything, your mother dropping you off at school for the first time and you are crying and she walks away, that's abandonment to the five-year-old. So I do inner child healing. And people always want to look at what we have actually labeled as the obvious to be a traumatic experience. You know, have you been sexually abused? Did your mother hit you? Right. Did your mother, you know, bang you against the wall? You don't even understand that your mother telling you, like, stop it. You're being stupid. That is traumatic to a child. Because remember, as children, all we want is to be loved by our parents. So even growing up without a father, that's trauma. You know, even if you can have loving grandparents and loving, uh, you know, caregivers. But the fact that those that you naturally would be wired to connect to are not there and you need to rewire because now, you know, uh, the nature is not working in its order, you know, so you need to now start to say, okay, these are the people who've raised me and these become, you know, are my parents. So there is a lot of things that are traumatic, but because we don't see them as tragic as getting gang raped and we're like, no, but yours is not as bad as mine, you know, or it's not as bad as this one. And for me, with the work that I do, Nicole, and, and, and also having my own traumas growing up in Alexandra Township, you know, and, and having had a series of sexual violations, I've asked myself, how come I made it out, right? And my, the, the, you know, my cousins are still in Alex, and there's a cousin of mine who we were very close, and she was extremely smart, right? And she had an, an experience, one, and she collapsed. And I was like, what, what is that? Then this is what got me on the journey of really trying to understand 
how does the human psyche work? Because what we do then would say, no, but look at this one, Nicole, look at you. You have the same thing, but you've done better. Because we think that we all process what we experience the same way and we are not all, we don't all have, you know, we all have a brain, but it doesn't process things the same way because what engages when we are experiencing extreme stress is what, what our brain can be able to give us to help us survive. The brain function is to help us, to keep us alive, right? Mine could do this and yours can do that thing. So we cannot sit here and want to say that, no, you know, it only be, can, she can only become evil if she got this and this done. There could be other things. If you look at what, you know, Western psychiatrists are starting to do now, your Dr. Bruce Perry, your Dr. Gabor Mate, are starting to realize that actually Western psychology is very limited in deeply understanding trauma and interventions that can heal trauma. And they're starting to work with indigenous communities where they speak about what we do as the Sangomas that actually are interventions of healing trauma. And until the West brings it to us as Africans and packages it and calls it a program, then Africans will start to say, wow, that's great. And then they invite somebody who's coming to speak on Rosemary. It's the very Africans who are going to say, show Max, what are you doing? We've yeah. got our very own, you know? Mm -hmm. So you see, because we ourselves have been traumatized, mm -hmm. you know, how the West has imposed its paradigm onto us and we don't understand our behavior and how we respond to information that's given to us some of us is trauma. It's our trauma response. No, 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 don't tell me about Sangomas. And you're not even open to listening because that's what trauma does. It rewires your brain. You no longer seek genuine connection. All you want to do is keep yourself safe, like how your brain did. Like, we just got to keep alive. We are surviving. We are not living. There is so much in there. The wisdom of ancient tradition how that's been lost and held on to simultaneously, and now resurges, perhaps only because the Western world has put their stamp of approval on it. Big T, little T trauma. How we convince ourselves that your trauma is bigger than my trauma, because yours has a name and mine doesn't. Yours was a violation of your body, and mine was only a violation of my mind. The trauma of poverty and exactly what that has done to the more than half of our population who live below what the World Bank terms the so-called poverty line. How that may have played into Rosemary's crimes and the crimes of thousands of other criminals who pushed into their reptilian brain by trauma of all kinds, even ones without names, use violence, power games and anger just to feel something, anything. And if you get a visceral feeling of, well, I also experienced trauma but didn't do that, so let's stop excusing them, consider that maybe you are escaping your reptilian brain in other ways. Lashing out at your loved ones, overspending, binge eating, 
gossiping about others because it makes you feel better. So many things we all do. Different, yes, not murder. But allow yourself to think about it, if you can. But before we get pulled too far into Rosemary's mind and experiences, let's bounce back for a second to those who were traumatized here. The victims. Primary, secondary and tertiary who lived through this and will live with this for longer than Rosemary will ever serve in prison, even if she stays there for the rest of her natural life. How would the cultural aspects of this case and the people involved have impacted those victims and their experiences, we wondered? I think Shomex did a really good job of showcasing the whole, for lack of a better word, spectacle of Rosemary and Rovu from a victim's viewpoint. In previous episodes, we mentioned Rosemary's influencing factors on her family and loved ones, but I really don't think it can be overstated just how such an intense betrayal can not only fracture a family, but a person on an individual basis. They have each had to navigate the internal conflict of loving Rosemary as a sister, a daughter, an aunt, a provider, but holding her accountable as a murderer and a fraudster. What really struck me about this case is the unending mourning that the living victims have to go through. There were so many points of deep hurt within this case that even from an outsider's perspective, we could empathize with their struggles. Rosemary's crimes have also had a cultural impact on South Africa, And her name has become a verb in conversation. Unfortunately, as a result of this, her surviving victims are now at risk of constantly being confronted with that trauma. Nguni customs are extremely family-centered. In fact, I'd go so far as to say Africanism itself is family-centered. When we speak of family in the African context, We don't only refer to our immediate family or even our extended family of uncles, aunts, and cousins. In my experience, there's no distinction between immediate family and extended family. My uncle's children are my brothers and sisters. My mother's aunt is my grandmother. So to put it in a Western context, extended family would be the neighbors and community at large. But if you are blood-related, you are basically immediate family. I think it's important to know about these relationship dynamics so that we can better comprehend the impact that Rosemary's actions had on her family and their small village community. Unlike suburbia, there is little to no isolation in the villages. Black families in the villages do not exist independently of one another. What affects one family affects the entire community. I think that's such an important point to make. For me as a white South African, and no, I cannot speak for all white South Africans, I can only speak from my own experience, immediate family in my mind is mother, father and siblings, full stop. Even a grandmother to me is considered extended family. Cousins are like distant family. And I think when we consider the impact on victims, 
it's vital to understand that every person's connection to the victim is different. So if, heaven forbid, my cousin was murdered, it would be dreadful. But I can't see that trauma being as impactful to me as perhaps my mother being murdered. And here is where culture makes this case different. Rosemary's victims didn't see family as mom and dad. That's not the culture they were raised in. So many people's understanding of the impact this would have had is just a fraction of what it really was. Because their own lived experiences, my own lived experiences, would prevent them from ever fully understanding. Coco Deneo is uniquely placed to understand how the victims' lived cultural experiences may have impacted them uniquely. I like this question very much because what we have lost as well, even as you know, uh, people who are deeply spiritual as Africans, we tend uh, to now stop looking at into you know how has this impacted the victims because now we just need to be strong. Remember, stay strong. At least now she's arrested. You know, at least now justice has taken its course. But you don't understand that Rosemary is still a, a sibling. <laughs> Rosemary is still a child. So there's still a love for my sibling, but there is pain towards the actions of my sibling. So already, just by them finding out that the killer has been one of our own, that's traumatic. That's a betrayal. That's deep betrayal. Right. And and then they get into what we call cognitive dissonance because it's confusion. It's like, but I love this person, but I hate them. Right. <laughs> you know, but they betrayed me, but they're still my sibling. And you also see when, you know, in the death she was involved and how she disrupted and interrupted the mourning process, you know, with her antics. And we have those things like we have the mourning rituals because that is a way in which we can say to those who've lost their loved ones because they are victims, to say, we see you and be in your pain and that's okay. That's why the community would do the things that they would do. That's why the community would gather around your house. That's why you would sit in a mattress and you would not do anything because when you see people coming in, some of them remind you that, oh my God, I would normally see this one with my child. I would see this one with my husband. And now they're all alone. That means that indeed my husband is gone because those processes were were built as part of them. You know, we are going through mourning. There's acceptance, there's anger, there's all of those things. But those things she also interrupted. So and not uh, also them coming into the documentary and speaking out. And now people say, wow, did you see? Did you say that about your sister? So so more people now know, you know, even more than when she was on trial, um, you know, because of this documentary. So for, for the victims to understand that they need to go through processes, not only African rituals of cleansing to cut off, because I spoke about cutting off the pathology of this toxic trait so it doesn't find itself. And one of the ways it finds itself is when victims go unhealed, they become perpetrators. And that's the thing, that that's how you also break the cycle of abuse because we tend not to go back and focus on the victim and say, you know, what is the healing that is needed for them so this thing does not become generational. This is what gives birth to generational cases, to generational trauma, 
and we think that it's just happening now, it happens because the victims get left behind. Our nuclear system is far more bigger than other traditions are. You know, family is not just me and my children and my husband. Mm -hmm. Family is my mother. Family is my cousin. You could even hear in the in our language. You know, in Zulu, cousin is umzala, right? Umzala. If you you literally translate it, meaning that we come from the same womb. You know, or we come from the same bloodline. So that is important to us. And loyalty to family because we keep each other protected and we keep each other safe. So if one of our own goes and doesn't keep us safe, you don't stop loving them immediately. That's what I was talking about, cognitive dissonance. You feel the betrayal, but you still love them, right? So even when you see Rosemary's mother struggling to come to like your child, do you see what your child has done? Because then it's like, but is, does that mean I'm evil too? But she's still my child and she still needs my love, you see. But I, I can see. So we, 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 it becomes very painful. It becomes very painful because that's the interconnectedness that I've spoken about. We, we believe very strongly we are interconnected to our relatives and that we need each other, you know, in, in order for us to be able to, to survive, in order for us to be able to live. So everyone in the family is important. That's why it was not upset for people for her to say, you know, here's the money or I've taken a policy or for her to ask for death certificates. You know, it's, yeah, it's, it's exactly. a, a cousin yeah. and no, can I have the death certificates? Because to us, we are family, right? And also the, the position she had in a family was a prominent one. She was a professional, which many people are not in a family. So as a professional is like, oh, wow. You know, yeah, she knows. Let her do the paperwork. And probably because some people are illiterate, you know, let her do the paperwork. It's fine. So that's why she could get away with so much, because she also was aware of what are the weaknesses and the limitations in the family and manipulated, you know. So there was manipulation, you know, they were manipulated. They were, you know, they were betrayed. There's a lot that happened. I can tell you now, even in the family, what it has cost is divisions. Do you see how fighters went? Now the family can never be in unionship and in uh, united because then there are people who are being pulled apart by what she did. There's those who still say that, yeah, you know, there's a saying that in Sutu that we express that there's no trash bin for your child. Right. So there's people who say, but she's still our own. We know she's wronged and she's killed so many, um, you know, but no. You know, uh, this is this is the 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 romanticizing of the Ubuntu principle, yeah. where it's like you know, let's forgive and let's move on because she's still our own anyway. Because if we are throwing her to the dogs, then what? I'm not saying they should, but yeah, I'm yeah. saying that. But yeah. you are not allowing those who feel violated and victimized by her to make yeah. their own choices yeah. because we need to you know decide as a family that the best way is we must just. You know, because she still is. And that's why people get away with so much still in the family. You see it with yeah. with somebody who is a rapist in the family, an uncle who's a pedophile. Okay. How people just like, no, let's talk about it and let's just we'll take it you will take the uncle to Goko Dinewo and she will perform this cleansing and get rid of the spirit. And I'm like, Yeah, we can do that, but how are we holding the uncle accountable? <laughs> you know, how yeah. is the uncle being held accountable, and how do we still say to the victim, have dinner with the uncle? This person, you know, 
actually violated your safety and took your power away? How are we empowering you back by, by saying that it's okay for the perpetrator to be in there? And this is the conversations we must be having. And I don't think this is only in black communities. I know it in a lot of traditional communities, how we just pray, you know, because it's the devil. The devil came and is trying to steal the joy of this family. And, and violators and perpetrators are not held accountable. And I think this is what, what I have learned from my own story about how we easily forgive and we you, because we are told it's important. Yes, forgiveness is a gift to self. You are freeing yourself from the experience, but you can still forgive somebody and choose not to have them at the, the dinner table because that's a boundary. You are saying that your behavior has been unacceptable and you are not allowed to be here because you, you are a predator and you are a hunter and you hunt your own. And, and, and this, as I speak as well, some of the perpetrators are still my family and I'm still struggling to say, you are the perpetrator, you're the predator, <laughs> stay away, you know, don't come into, because the way in which we've been wired around family means, uh, you know, ride or die, even in dire situations. This is undoubtedly true about many families and it continues to re-traumatize victims. Rosemary's victims are predominantly also her family. And as we've already established, it doesn't matter if she is a distant cousin. There's no such thing in the culture she was raised in, nor in that which the victims live in. She is blood of their blood. And she is a murderer. And she betrayed them. And when the victims want to speak... Their voices are tinged with the understanding that by doing so they are speaking out against their own, but also against their perpetrator. The mind boggle involved in that is just indescribable. Now the other part of this case that involves culture and traditional belief is one that people are a lot more hesitant to talk about that has hovered like a dark cloud around since day one. I will tell you that many of the people I've spoken to who've had anything to do with this case have alluded to their concerns about Rosemary and Glovu having been involved with or consulting practitioners of some sort of Muti practice. People have mentioned how they've found creating content around this case far more challenging than usual and they occasionally wondered whether or not it had something to do with those allegations. I think the mind is a powerful thing, but as was discussed in Rosemary's hit list, we do know that at the very least, the hitmen who were allegedly hired to kill Justice Mordau had consulted a Sangoma, and they were told that killing the man would be the worst mistake of their lives. And while this is interesting in itself, I said to Coco Dineo that I found it almost more interesting that these men, these presumably cold-blooded killers who saw nothing of killing for the right price, simultaneously held on to the belief system they were raised in so strongly that they used it as a decision-making tool for whether or not to actually commit murder. It would be, for instance, like a person who'd had a really strong Christian upbringing being an assassin 
but also consulting their God in prayer before committing a murder. And, of course, I know it's not a direct comparison because African traditional beliefs aren't religious in nature as such, but rather spiritual. It's just such a strange dichotomy to me. Even though we are not here to make comparisons, it must be noted that the central figure of Abrahamic religious belief systems exists outside of your direct family line. Your life and afterlife are influenced by forces that are unrelated to you and have no familial bonds with you. In the afterlife, your soul will not have influence on the living. In contrast to this, African belief systems, or or rather Nguni belief systems, because that's what I'm most familiar with, Nguni belief systems are entirely family-centered. In the afterlife, you will join those that came before you and will be responsible for the protection and guidance of your living descendants. But I, I do need to emphasize that not all those who die become ancestors and not all those who become ancestors are benevolent. Many a time, killers, whether they be serial killers or hired killers or one-time killers, are mystified. The public struggles to conceptualize how such a person can exist, and they even believe them to be morally bankrupt. I think that it's really important for us as the true crime community, and especially us as the speakers and presenters in the true crime space, to present people as whole human beings. We need to rid ourselves of the unfortunate delusion that criminals are unlike us when they very much are like us. They go to school with us. They shop with us. They pray with us. Some even use their religions and traditions to their advantage and as a means to lure victims. So to me, it isn't strange that the two hitmen hired to kill Justice Modao were in communication with a Sangoma and believed Modao to be greatly spiritually protected. I would hazard a guess that most hired hitmen in South Africa believe, if not in a higher power or, or a god, they at least believe in respect and revere traditional customs. Demystifying killers and criminals in general is one small way that we can break away from the, the cognitive dissonance that criminals are strangers when the statistics prove the exact opposite. In the case of gender-based violence, most victims know their perpetrators. In the case of human trafficking, most people that are trafficked are lured by friends, family, or colleagues. Even crimes of less violence and less magnitude, such as housebreakings, you find that the person responsible for casing the premises is known to the victim. Unfortunately, we need to divorce ourselves from the idea that criminals are not like us. They may have ordinary jobs like us. They may have families that they love and respect just like us. And they may pray to who we pray to and believe the things that we believe. And that is so true. Just because we can't understand a criminal's actions doesn't mean that they are somehow other than us. Here's what Coco Teneo had to say about this aspect. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that these hitmen, 
get away with what they do because they are bounded. They know the power that exists in their traditional belief systems and practices. Mm. So they know that I need to get away with it. Uh, and I know this is wrong. I told, I know they're conscious. This is wrong. But then it would be like, no, but, you know, unemployment or no, because there's good money in it and I need to take care of my family. So they they know exactly what they're doing. And that's why they consult before, because, uh, you know, they know that they can risk everything for just that, you know, moment of monetary value. Because their thing is we must continue making a livelihood out of this without being caught. They even know that even if they're not caught, but they're being haunted. That's why they go and consult. Mm -hmm. Like what, you know, who's standing with this person? What's going to happen? They know the things that are done because the people who go to, who, who consults them and gives them whatever, do tell them that this is what the family is going to do. So you must do X and X so that this person doesn't come back. The spirit doesn't come back to haunt you, you know. But uh, I said that, meaning, you know, once you take somebody else's life, their blood doesn't run dry forever because it will definitely come and haunt you. Eventually it will, it will haunt your children because that's what we know, you know, that's what we know. That's why these hitmen will not, after they do that, they won't go home immediately. They won't. They would go and do the cleansing ritual that they need to perform and stay away for a while because what are they doing? They're protecting their family. But they're like, no, it's fine. You know, um, I, I know there's a possibility. And they also go to, uh, you know, healers who are, have what we call a spiritual ego. I'm powerful. Don't worry. You know, uh, give me 100,000 or 50,000. I'll do this cleansing that it never haunts you and never comes back to your family. No, you're not God. You are not God. We are held accountable for our actions. So it will stain. You know, it will stain. It's like when somebody is, when you've had your white dress, even if you can actually soak it and wash it with vanish, but you'll see that, you know, the color is not the same because the stain is, is, is not visible to everyone, but it will be visible to you somewhat. And I think for me, that's that's why they go. They don't, of course, they don't go um you know, do this evil deeds without really consulting because they also don't want to be caught. They're trying to protect themselves, but they're trying to 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 benefit at the at the same time. That is such a vivid image. The stain that's never quite gone. And I think that regardless of your belief system, that is true. Call it what you want. Karma, bad blood, generational curses conscience. When you commit crimes such as those Rosemary and Lovu did, you will never really be free, regardless of whether you're caught or not. As Goko Dineo says, there are always consequences for your actions. Sometimes those consequences don't look like jail time, but they are there regardless. Sadly, the stain is also there for the victims, and it's not one they've earned or deserve. When Fundo and I were planning this podcast, she shared some additional cultural insights around this case with me that I found fascinating. As both Ukokorineo and myself have mentioned, many of our African customs have been lost to colonization time as well as modernization. 
the tradition of people shaving their heads after the death of a close family member is one such custom lost to modernization. Many, many years ago, there existed a tradition within the Shitonga community where if a man became widowed, he would not be permitted to take a new partner for at least six months after the funeral. Of course, these traditions don't exist today, but it is similar to other cultures' grief and mourning customs. Many westernized societies required widows to wear black for a year after the passing of their husbands. In some communities, widows were sent away to live out the rest of their lives with other widows, taking care of orphans or otherwise unwanted members of their communities and society. These traditions were not only intended to give mourners the time and space to grieve, but they were also a sign of respect for the deceased and their surviving family members. I think it's interesting how cultures from different parts of the world can have such similar experiences. And more than anything, I think that speaks to the thread that connects humanity. And I think it echoes our South African motto of Ubuntu. Ubuntu. Ubuntu ngabantu. A person is a person through other people. I think that's a pretty profound way to bring us full circle. What Rosemary and Blovu did impacted an incredible number of people, deeply and forever. And while there are interesting and important differences in this case compared to others, the sameness of the humanity remains. The pain, the grief, the trauma is ours because it is theirs. And there's a risk in us othering the victims of these crimes as much as there is a risk in not considering them at all. Coco Deneo has some insights to share around shame and the destructive power it holds. I think one of the things that I, I didn't speak about is how powerful shame is, mm. right? And how shame actually has us not be able to, I mean, you could see with some of the family members. So for me, I wasn't, I wasn't part of the investigation, of course. But what was interesting is that some of the things I said in my initial interview with them, because the interview is edited. People must know that it's edited. I said a lot and they can't put everything in there that can deeply contextualize the inputs that I've given. But it's what led the documentary to start asking questions that they never thought about. Because some of the things I said, without even having a sit down with Rosemary in, 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 the, in the conversation with them, started to say, wow, okay. And when they, were, they asked questions, then it confirmed the things that I said. And I think this is what people need to know and, and, and be fascinated about um, African spirituality is because what it does, it helps us see beyond the obvious. So can you imagine if these systems spoke to each other, including us, some of these problems that we have can actually get to resolve much more quicker than they would be versus this fragmentation. This is police work. It has nothing to do. I'm not saying go consult Isangoma for this or that, but there has to there has to be. We just cannot just have conversations. We need to find how do these systems start to speak to each other. 
you know, for quicker, effective uh, results and for saving many more lives. And I think to also say that uh, we look at Rosemary and we're like, yeah, we say it as we see it, there is evil mm-hmm. in her. Um, but we also ask ourselves, like, what was she deeply shameful about that she had to act in such a way to be able to feel alive because she was running away from something? Because when she couldn't do it, something was haunting her. And even to people who are listening to the podcast is to say, what a shame done. Because we carry so much shame and shame also drives us to reckless, dangerous, risky behaviors because we are escaping something. And we need to get into that behavior as a way of running away from something. Yeah, she was addicted to gambling, but what are you addicted to? And most of us are addicted to something. When you are on your phone all the time, that's an addiction, you know. So if we can start to be self-aware of things, that self-awareness can really help us to see what has happened to us. And once we know, we can work through those things and we become a better people. And as a better people, we show more compassion, we show more empathy, and in that we build a better society. If there's anything I've learned through my true crime podcast journey It's that there is not that much difference between us and them, between the criminals and the non-criminals. There's an element of what made Rosemary, Rosemary in all of us. We all have a bit of that. Some of us, even now, when they were looking, they're like, oopsie, actually I took, I put that beneficiary because I know that I'm not going to give the full 50,000, I'm going to take 5,000 and pocket my 45,000, you know. So we know we do that. There's a lot of us. How many of us have actually done little bits of evil? It's just that her evil, you know, has has become extreme. Actually, we move first from false, you know, before we become evil. Desire is like, no, I'm just, then it becomes that. It becomes bigger. It grows from there. So there is parts of us in here. And if we can see parts of us in here, then we can be able to say, then what is it that I need to work, you know, with myself so I don't end up being fully here. That's how we need to see it. When we look at how justice, the justice system was in ancient Africa, when somebody has done wrong, we see that as a reflection of the community. So we ask ourselves as a community, what is it that we have done that we've moved away from the principles that would say that I am because you are, you know, harming you is harming myself. And at the same time, we're like, but we still need to hold this person accountable. So there would be things in a way in which you you get what we call restorative justice, because right now we have, uh, you know, either enabling justice systems or punitive justice systems that makes things worse. Somebody goes and comes back and repeats the same crime because there has not been restoration. You know, there hasn't been proper rehabilitation. I mean, I want to say big thank you to Showmax. You you don't find a lot of platforms like this that wants to tell a narrative that helps people see things differently. And also for the fact that they had a Sangoma, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That is a big deal. And it was a big risk for them as well, you know. But it shows that it is what it says it is, is like an African, you know, streaming platform that also needs to have the voices of its people be heard, but be heard in a way that is empowering. 
And I hope some of the people who've watched the documentary have started to think twice about things and moving away from certain things because religion might have said it's evil and recognizing that actually the evil is in me denying, you know, doing these things because then there's been a evil that has happened in the family because we've demonized certain things about our identity. And I think that was brilliant, even to the team. Yo, it was amazing working with the production team. They were amazing because when I would say no, it wasn't even when they were shooting in my practice. And I'm like, please just move the cameras away because I train other Sangomas. Please don't show the faces when they are in trance because it's not Dineo, you know, it's somebody else. And somebody watching might, you know, interpret that as something completely different. Just the respect of the sacredness of the practice and that they came in to actually say that true healing, true African healing is sounds and shows up like what Gogo is starting to teach us and inform us about, not what history has informed us about. Um, we need to move away from those distortions and those stereotypes because these are the belief systems and the stereotypes that keeps us stuck. And these are the belief systems and the stereotypes that actually enable behaviors like Rosemary, because I'm hoping another healer has watched it and said, oopsie, I've actually cleansed an Ngabi and I've letting them get away with Meta because the money was good or I thought I was doing my work. So we can all start questioning ourselves and our, our moral belief systems, our values, and how are we showing up for the betterment of the collective? Because it's not just about me. I am part of that. And when I do something that impacts the collective, when the collective collapse is going to impact me too. Mfundo and I set out in creating this official companion podcast with Showmax to delve deeper into the aspects of the case against Rosemary Nomia Ndlovu that needed further clarity. Our hope is always to firstly recognize and remember the victims and secondly to get information out into the public domain that may prevent something like this from happening again. On that latter hope, we'll never know if we were successful. But perhaps it's enough if just one person gained an insight from the series that will help them in any way in their personal lives. Whether that's in protecting themselves from harm, recognizing the harm they're doing to others or themselves, or simply one small grain of self-reflection that results in personal growth. Cases like this make us angry, and understandably so. We want to know why, how dare she, why did no one stop her? But if there's no change from that anger, it's futile. As individuals, we can't necessarily change the way departments interact with one another, we can't stop another woman or man from deciding that their own personal goals are more important than their family members' lives. But we can change ourselves. Because maybe in the end, all we can do is look within and ask which parts of ourselves need healing. What has kept us stuck in a negative cycle? And how can we move forward in a way that's beneficial to us and the rest of the world. Rosemary made her choices, and people paid the highest price for them. And she too 
has paid with her freedom. Maybe that's enough, and maybe it isn't. But it would be pointless to remain stuck in this place with her. She did what she did. And now we get to choose what we take from these horrendous crimes. Mpundo and I are incredibly grateful for the opportunity to discuss this case on this platform. We hope that you've gained value from these four episodes and look forward to presenting future companion podcasts to you in the hopes of creating an ethical and educational true crime content creation community in South Africa. I'd like to personally say a huge thank you to Mfundo Ndala for joining me on this companion pod. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor to work with her, and thank you again to Showmax for providing this platform. We're going to end this episode with the names of the people who matter most here. Those who lost their lives in the series of murders we've discussed. May their loved ones be comforted by the love they shared and the memories that no one can snatch away from them. Madala Witness Homu, Audrey Ndlovu, Zanele Mota, Maurice Mabasa, Mayeni. Mashaba Brilliant Mashejo You are remembered